Where do we start? We start in Chicago, where the outlawists started. Uh, we start everywhere. We, we educate uh, and we organize and we do the small campaigns like resolutions and divestment locally and build our way up to the state and national and global levels, even while working with people uh, around the world. Um, I think back in the back, yes, sir. I can try my best. Does everyone here know who Smedley Butler was? Yes. Raise your hand if you know who Smedley Butler was. Okay, not enough. Our, our, our heroes, the people who should be on the Mount Rushmores and the monuments in Washington, D.C., should include people like Smedley Butler, not warmongers. Uh, and so you should, you should go read uh, books by and about uh, such people. Um, but. Smedley Butler was the most decorated uh, U.S. Marine general, uh, and he had been part of numerous wars and occupations and essentially run places like Haiti that were occupied by the U.S. Marine Corps. He had also run prohibition in Philadelphia. He had also been locked up in Quantico after it, as the guy in charge of the Marine base at Quantico. Uh, he was locked up in it prior to Bradley slash Chelsea Manning being locked up there, if anyone knows who she is. Um, raise your hand. Okay, there were a few hands. Raise your hand if you know what Smedley Butler was locked up for. No, I was getting to that, but uh, no. Uh, a friend of Smedley Butler's had told him that he had been in a car with Benito Mussolini the head of the Italian fascist government, and Mussolini had run over a little girl and kept going and said, never look back, always look for, you know. There's a, so a recent U.S. president said something similar. Anyway, uh, it, and and this, was, this was highly offensive to U.S. relations with our good allies, the fascist Italians, uh, and so they locked Smedley Butler up until the guy who had told him the story came forth and said it, it was true and I was the guy in the car, and until... All the, all the veterans and all the supporters of Smedley Butler rallied to his defense. But, but when, when Italy and Germany and other nations around the world were being taken over by fascists, and there was a fascist movement in France, and there was fascist movements everywhere, Wall Street wanted in. And they wanted somebody who could overthrow Franklin Roosevelt and put a fascist government in place in Washington, D.C. But most of the generals didn't really have the respect of the troops or the veterans or the, the American Legion or all these veteran groups. The only guy they could come up with who could say march and everybody would march was Smedley Butler. Uh, and they went with him, but they went to the wrong guy. And he went to Congress and they held hearings and exposed the whole thing and the coup didn't happen. But Smedley Butler started going around the country giving speeches on why war is a racket and we're bombing and invading places for the profits of Wall Street. Uh, and, you know, he's, he's a model for Veterans for Peace. Uh, there's a chapter of the Veterans for Peace organization named for him. Uh, he ought to be in every textbook. The, the Eisenhower quote about the money, the trade-off between war and human needs, is actually a different speech from the one about the military-industrial complex, both of which speeches have good parts and horrible parts in them. 
just like Eisenhower's career as president, uh, who in, a, in an Obama-like fashion traded off war for something he thought would be better, but it wasn't drone strikes, it was coups. Uh, it was Eisenhower who said overthrow the government of Iran in 1951 and put in place a dictator and maybe he'll last till 1979 and then there will be a, a, a coup and miserably bad relations with Iran following and the coup in Guatemala and so forth. Not a good invention, uh, but some good intentions. Pardoning war criminals, you know, is, is the norm, uh, especially at the highest level uh, and often at the level of something like the My Lai Massacre, uh, which was rather unique in Vietnam in being reported on, not in happening. Uh, there were massacres all over, uh, and this was, this was a war that killed probably four million Vietnamese and hundreds of thousands of people in Laos and Cambodia, uh, and of course, uh, tens of thousands of US troops. Uh, and you can go to Washington, D.C. and look at that wall and read the names of the US troops. And this is a little wall that's shaped like a V that's just down in front of the Lincoln Memorial, which is at one end of the National Mall, which stretches all the way to the Washington Monument, and then all the way to the US Capitol. And I did the math. And if you put all the victims of that war on that wall, it would have to start at the Lincoln Memorial and go all the way to the US Capitol and back again and back again and back again and back again and then almost back to the Washington Monument again. So, you know, so our, our memorials are not quite up to the task. Uh, I, I recommend Nick Terse's book of a year or two back uh, called Kill Anything That Moves uh, for the latest studies and analysis of the policies of the war on Vietnam. Uh, but this was from the top. Uh, and had you started prosecuting people for following orders, you, you, you might have had to prosecute the people giving the orders too, and that was the last thing they wanted. Uh, this, this was the norm in that war. This wasn't a bad apple, uh, and so there was every motivation to cover it up uh, and, and set it aside and move forward. Yes? Well, I applaud you for it, and tell me anything I can do to help with it, and uniting and enlarging the, the group of peace activists is something that almost everybody wants to do and certainly World Beyond War wants to do globally and we invite every group to uh, become an affiliate or a chapter or otherwise work with us as an ally uh, and every individual to form a chapter uh, and uh, yeah, there's, there's nothing, the only thing we need to do more than unite peace advocates is get more of them <laughs> involved. Yeah, we. Uh, good question. We have a we have a slogan on uh, World Beyond War that says, "If war were really inevitable, would it need a billion-dollar marketing arm? Uh, it, it, would it need to quietly pay national sports teams to pretend they celebrate the business of war? Would it would it need to be promoted throughout our our culture and normalized if it were inevitable and natural? You know that." The, the strange thing is that, that war has not been part of most human societies in, as long as we've had a species. Uh, and in the biggest war-making societies today, most people have, have nothing to do with it. Uh, and the few that do tend to suffer dramatically from having been part of it. 
whereas there's not been yet a case found of you know, PTSD from war deprivation. It's not, a, it's not a human need. And yet all of us who avoid it, stay as far as we can from actually being in it, have it in our minds, have it as somehow it, it's acceptable and praiseworthy. Uh, and this is because of, a, of an advertising campaign uh, that you know, the peace movement just doesn't have the money to match uh, that has told us that, that war is you know, an absolutely necessary evil or even glorious and praiseworthy. And, and it's not, even that has not always been there. The American Legion, you'll read the list of organizations in When the World Outlawed War that backed outlawing war in the 1920s and the American Legion is on there as the Parents and Teachers Association and the, you know, every Every religious denomination, every civic group, any organization that's been around since the 1920s is on record for <laughs> abolishing war. And as, to my knowledge, none of them have renounced that. They just have let it fade away. And, and it's because war has been made a major business. Uh, and, and people think of it as a business and defend it as a business. Imagine if you lived in the Middle East or North Africa and you heard U.S. Congress members talking about war as a jobs program. What sort of person you might think they were. I, I, I always uh, recall this panel discussion on a stage uh, with uh, Vladimir Putin is one of the panelists and a guy whose name I always forget who was a the last U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union, but this was, this was many years later that they had this uh, discussion. A and Putin says, why are you putting all these missiles in these countries right on the border of Russia? You know, they, ru ru imagine if Russia had missiles on the Mexican and Canadian borders of the U.S., what we would think of that. And, and, and he the former ambassador turns to President Putin and says, no, Vladimir, you do not understand. They have nothing to do with Russia. It's just a jobs program for back in the States. And, he, and Vladimir Putin says, well, couldn't you have a different jobs program? And, and, and I would have loved for him to be informed enough to have studies from uh, numerous places and never disputed anywhere, to my knowledge, including the University of Massachusetts Amherst, that show that, in fact, military spending reduces jobs. It's not a jobs program. Everybody's got a neighbor working in the war industry. They're real people. They really exist, so on and so forth. Uh, but if you put the same dollars into anything else, into education, infrastructure, green energy, even if you just didn't tax working people in the first place, you get more jobs. So as one might expect, if one thought about it for a minute, the war machine is actually a drain on an economy, not a boost to it. And yet the interests of those of that small segment of the population that profits from the war industry is very, very powerful in Washington uh, and, and is overlaps with the interests of the U.S. media and of the U.S. Congress before whom they dangle the jobs, right? Even though they could have more jobs <laughs> if they chose to transition or convert, uh, they've got those jobs and they don't want to lose them. This is why a single weapon is made in 86 different congressional districts in little bits and pieces so they can dangle those jobs. Uh, and so there, there are many, many reasons that war happens uh, and one of them is the profits to be made. 
Yeah. So the question is, if you didn't hear, is about creating a department of peace. Uh, and by the way, these are all wonderful questions. Uh, and the people I was speaking with before uh, the event who were asking, what about World War II? What about Hitler? What about the next Hitler? Which is, you know, always dominates the question and answer periods. And I swore that would be the first question. I lied. I'm, I'm delighted to have been wrong. Uh, and I won't, I won't talk about the what about the next Hitler until you guys ask me to. Uh, but I think, I think the Department of Peace is a wonderful idea. Um, I think you know, it's advancing further in various countries, in Canada included, uh, than in the US. I think it should be advanced in the US at least as an educational tool to make people aware of what you know, a Secretary of Peace would advocate for. You know, I used to, there was a party, a few, very few people may have heard of, called the Green Party, uh, that had a, a candidate that created a shadow cabinet, and I was the Secretary of Peace, and we would put out policy statements, and it was intended to, to educate people about what the U.S. government might do in the interests of peace. Uh, that being said, you know, there was a movement decades back to create a peace academy, to match the military academies in the U.S. government, uh, and it morphed into something called the U.S. Institute of Peace, which has a massive building right across the street from the Lincoln Memorial with this thing on the top that I thought was a brassiere, but apparently it's a dove, and, and carved into the marble of the building, funded by Lockheed Martin, you know, and all the weapons dealers. And on the board of the U.S. Institute of Peace, the Secretary of So-Called Defense, the head of the CIA, etc. Uh, and we actually went there, a bunch of peace activists went there with a petition to them asking, you know, pleading, could the U.S. Institute of Peace oppose a war someday? Because, of course, it's never opposed a war. And, uh, and we met with the, 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 the president and, you know, top members and, and you know, they just, they just wouldn't. They wouldn't, you know, uh, agree to... You know, they, they, they said they agreed that their that their goal was peace and they wanted peace, including in Afghanistan. We were talking a lot about Afghanistan. And, and I asked her, the, the woman who was the head of the place, you know, she said there are lots of means of getting to peace. And I said, is one of those means you have in mind war? And she said, well, yes. You know, and so, I mean, they have a peace poll. You know, you can get a peace poll, which let there be peace on earth in numerous languages. It's a wonderful way to put up a peace monument. They have one in the Pentagon, right? The Pentagon will tell you they work for peace through war, right? And so what we need has to go beyond another U.S. Institute of Peace called the Department of Peace. It has to go beyond another building that has a dove on top. We have to move the U.S. government toward peace. And if having a man or woman in some meetings who represents peace and advocates for peace can help us nudge the U.S. government in that direction, then I'm all for it. But as long as we've got a State Department that thinks it's part of the War Department and a War Department that thinks it's the Defense Department and so on, uh, you know, we, we need bigger reforms, uh, you know, but it can be a step. And even advocating for it can be a step in the right direction. What industry could be created that would profit from peace? Uh, well, almost every industry does profit from peace, uh, and we could create awareness of that fact. The only industries that don't profit from peace 
uh, are the war industries and the so-called security industries and the militarizing of the police and the border industries uh, and those industries that rightly or wrongly imagine they profit from the exploitation of, of foreign countries intimidated through war and military bases. Everybody else does profit from peace. This is why the Kellogg-Briand Pact could be created, why steps for peace could be taken back in the 20s and 30s, because the weapons industry was smaller. And the farmers in the US, who were far more influential or corrupting, however you want to look at it, on the US government in the 1920s than weapons makers were, they wanted the European nations to buy food not weapons. And so out of wanting them to buy food, uh, they, they were for peace, right? And well, food is still a useful thing in the world as far as I can tell. And you know, the, the, the models of how you convert uh, are not, you know, are not in need of development, you know, have been around for decades. Uh, there was a professor named Seymour Melman who wrote book after book after book and wrote bills for Congress. Uh, and there was a bill making good progress in the U.S. Congress uh, on launching conversion from war industries to peace industries when a guy named John F. Kennedy was killed. And that was the last that was heard of that for years until the Soviet Union shut down peacefully, thank goodness, and uh, 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 there was this talk of a peace dividend. Y'all are going to get your money now. We aren't going to need it anymore. The commie threat is gone. Hooray. I mean, <laughs> if, if, you, if you believe that, uh, you know, I've got a bridge for you, but uh, it, the, there was a bill making progress in the U.S. Congress that was stopped primarily uh, by the U.S. congressman from Lockheed Martin, Newt Gingrich. And it, and it really hasn't been seen since. There's a bill that Eleanor Holmes Norton, the you know, disempowered, colonially occupied non-Congress member from Washington, D.C., introduces every year uh, to move the money from the nukes to good things. Um, and every year, cities pass resolutions and states pass resolutions and the U.S. Conference of Mayors passes a resolution telling Congress to move the money. And several years back now, there was this propaganda put out by the war industries. Obama was president that there was this major threat to defund the military. Uh, if, if you haven't heard, President Obama set records for military spending that have only been broken by President Trump's uh, government. Uh, and people believed it. I mean, governments believed it. And states like the state of Connecticut set up a commission with management and labor and environmental groups and legal groups and so on to investigate the process of converting Connecticut to peaceful industries and, and just what the economic benefits would be, never mind moral or cultural. And, so on. Uh, and you know, very, uh, a plan you could have taken and acted on immediately, but of course they realized that it wasn't happening, that the money was just going to keep on flowing into the Pentagon and they didn't need to convert. Uh, but you can get your city to convert, you can get federal funds to study what conversion would be like in your city, you know, and uh, it, it needs to be done. Uh, but we have to we have to get around this this bizarre idea that 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 war is economically good for us. Not to mention the sociopathic idea that that would justify war. Yeah. Do I know of a candidate leaning, for, uh, leaning toward peace who's running for president of the United... Well, I do in, in several countries, but I think you mean this one. Uh, 
Well, first of all, I answer this question not speaking for any organization that is forbidden to answer this question. Uh, you know, four years ago, there was a guy named Bernie Sanders who was running for president who I thought was just wonderful on domestic issues to the extent that you can be while never mentioning a one and a, tr one and a quarter trillion dollars, 60% of federal discretionary spending every year going into war. Uh, and so I wrote a letter and I got lots of prominent individuals and groups to sign it saying, Senator Sanders, we like your domestic policies. Could you have good foreign policies? Could you mention the military budget and how to cut it and, and oppose these wars and stop saying, you know, that Saudi Arabia should get its hands dirty by doing more of the wars that are like some sort of, there's some sort of public service for the world, the wars, but Saudi Arabia needed to pay for more of them instead of the U.S. paying for them all. So could you, could you have a good progressive foreign policy to match your domestic policies. And you can read this letter, tens of thousands of people signed it. It's at worldbeyondwar.org slash Bernie. Uh, and we, we met with his staff on the Hill and they had read the letter. And you know, they, they, he, his campaign has hired good people, has put out good statements. He's done great things for peace in Congress in, in the past many months. And as of last week, we now have the first plan for a Green New Deal that is aware of the existence of the U.S. military, and it's from Senator Sanders. So I, I certainly think that a President Sanders would be a step, not, a, not perfect, you know, not you know, glorified perfection, but would be a step in the direction of peace that Trump was not and Obama was not and Clinton was not and Bush and Reagan and you know that none of them have been. Um, I don't think he's perfect, and I think we have to keep pushing these people forever and ever. Um, I think that uh, that Tulsi Gabbard speaking up for peace is a very good thing, but a very mixed thing. And I think that the DNC cheating Mike Gravel out of being in the debates. Uh, raise your hand if you know who Mike Gravel is. Okay, he needs to be in our textbooks next to, next to Smedley Butler. Mike Gravel was the U.S. Senator who, who secretly got the Pentagon Papers from Daniel Ellsberg, the exposing decades of lies about Vietnam by numerous U.S. administrations, and read them into the congressional record, making them public, uh, risking his career and, and his freedom. Uh, and he was running for president this year, if nobody heard, uh, and had the best platform of a presidential candidate ever seen. And why was he kept out of the debates? He had more donors than needed and far more donors than numerous other candidates who were allowed in the debates who didn't have the number of donors needed. Uh, but he didn't manage to poll high enough in polls that, oh, by the way, didn't offer his name as one of the candidates you could choose in the polls. So the DNC cheated him out of it. They're now trying to cheat Tulsi Gabbard out of being in the debates going forward by picking which polls count and not picking the polls that have been ranked as the most accurate, but apparently picking the polls in which Tulsi Gabbard has done the worst. And, and you know, so this is after cheating all of us with this Russiagate madness as a distraction from having cheated Bernie Sanders four years ago. Anyway, Tulsi Gabbard, I think, is a very mixed message indicative of the best and the worst in our society, right? Because she's almost never spoken against wars without bragging about having helped destroy Iraq.
which by the way, she signed up for, you know, after even the New York Times had apologized, right? I mean, she now claims she was lied to, but everyone else had sort of agreed the lies had been exposed before she ever signed up. And she's now, unless she's back, on a US Army mission in Indonesia for the good of the empire, which she places higher than her running for president. Uh, so she says the most good things against wars, and some of them absolutely right, and she needs to be heard, and I want her in the debates. Uh, but it's a very mixed thing, and she is very much against the bad wars and for the good wars. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, other than that, um, you know, there are lots of candidates. Of course, Marianne Williamson is for peace. Uh, of course, uh, many of the Democrats are more for peace than Donald Trump is, but many are not. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's slim pickings. The weapons companies uh, that are some of the biggest companies on earth uh, profit enormously uh, from U.S. war making and U.S. preparations for war and weapon sales around the world. Uh, you know, there's this, the, the, the patriotism and the nationalism nonsense has gotten so intense that people imagine that weapons companies are part of the good American troops to cheer for, right? And they, they, Trump has created a space force where the troops in the Space Force are weapons companies, right? But these weapons companies all sell their weapons to whoever will buy them around the world, all the dictatorships, all the so-called democracies all over the planet, right? And so there's nothing patriotic flag-waving about it. Uh, and in fact, the, the United States arms with weapons, and in most cases, trains almost 75% of what the United States government defines as dictatorships around the world. Right? So when everyone freaks out that Donald Trump is talking to a dictator, my position is, my God, let's be glad he's not yet doing what the United States does with three quarters of the world's dictators, and that is sell them weapons and train them how to use them. Right? Uh, so the weapons business is a dirty business, uh, as it would be even if it were, even if it were not international. You know, but we think of these places like the Middle East, uh, Central Asia, North Africa, as somehow violent places. Uh, in fact, they manufacture almost no weapons, with the uh, exception of, of Israel and places like that. And, uh, and so it, it's, you know, were, were Native Americans a bunch of drunks or was somebody pushing alcohol on them? Were the Chinese a bunch of morphine addicts or opium addicts or was somebody pushing that stuff on them? Uh, it, you know, is the Middle East a more violent place than this one, or is it chucked, you know, packed up to the eyeballs with weapons that people very far away are profiting from? Uh, and of course, the weapons industry is very much integrated into the, the educational system in the United States. Uh, and we need to move universities not just to take their investments out of weapons making, uh, but get the weapons dealers out of the classrooms, get the funding uh, from the Pentagon out of the classrooms, get the JROTC programs out of the high schools, get, you know, you've got, you've got kids from Florida ready to oppose guns with everything they've got as long as the military and the police can have more guns, but we don't want anybody else to have guns. But, but we'll never, ever, 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 a single one of them ever mention that their classmate was wearing his JROTC shirt and had been trained to shoot in his school's cafeteria when he shot everybody out up because that's not 
a patriotic thing to mention. Uh, you know, we need we need to get education for the for the sake of education, not education for the sake of profit of the institutions and influence by the weapons dealers. And I, you know, a, a friend of mine put me on just this past weekend to the fact that the Pentagon. Uh, the, not the Pentagon, but the branches, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, uh, have what they call congressional fellows, where they send, you know, in many cases a high-ranking, active-duty member of the military in to serve as a staff person for a Congress member's office, right? So the Congress members have staff people they've hired, and they have staff people the military's hired and put in their office. And, and I noticed, and I have yet to effectively research this, that these congressional fellowships have sponsors, you know, as if the military needs sponsorship. Uh, who's paying for that? We ought to know. We ought to, we ought to find out. Uh, but as Eisenhower said, it's, you know, it's now in every, every aspect of our culture and our society and our, and our government. Thank you all very much for being here. Thank you.